Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel McCauley. It's been a few years since I've hosted this podcast, but Miguel and Ryan have been kind enough to invite me back for a very special conversation with this week's guest, my friend, Andy Ratcliffe. Andy is, among other things, the founder and CEO of Wealthfront, the well-known Silicon Valley robo-advisor. And in a past life, he co-founded Benchmark Capital, one of the top VC firms of all time. Andy and I discuss his career and what led him to come out of retirement to found Wealthfront. We also cover what's going on in the world today, including the rise of day trading apps, payment for order flow, the current crypto bull run, market bubbles, and the future of Wealthfront. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode half as much as I enjoyed making it. Let's get started. Andy, welcome back to the Wharton FinTech podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. So you were first on the podcast back in, I think, 2017. The world has obviously changed a lot since then. The rate of fintech funding has doubled. I think the U.S. money supply has probably doubled. The listenership of this <laughs> podcast has probably at least 10x. Not, I'm not taking credit for that, of course. I'm sure Bitcoin is more than 20x. You know, We're in the middle of a global pandemic. So I am interested to hear which of your answers to some of those questions from four years ago have remained the same and where you've changed your mind. But uh, given that you know, there are so many new listeners since you were last on the podcast, why don't we start off easy? You can give them some background on your career, who you are, and what you've done. Okay. Well, I graduated from Wharton undergrad in 1980, having studied finance and computer science. I spent a lot of time in the engineering school as well, but my degree was from Wharton. I worked on Wall Street for a couple of years and then was fortunate to get into Stanford Graduate School of Business. When I graduated, I went into the venture capital business, where I worked for about 23 or 24 years, the last 10 of which was as the co-founder and one of the partners of Benchmark Capital. I retired in 2005 with the intent of giving back, so I uh, started teaching at Stanford and technology entrepreneurship. I became a trustee at Penn. So Penn is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I've gone on to chair the, uh, I chaired the uh, engineering school over advisory board, what we now call the advisory board. And I now chair the endowment investment committee. The Penn endowment, I think, is the seventh largest endowment in the country, but probably 30th when it comes to endowment for students. So we have a long ways to go. And then uh, about uh, 11 years ago or so, I co-founded Wealthfront, thinking that I would just get it started as a hobby and then recruit a CEO. And here I am still the CEO of that company. Wow. So you've done a lot. You've had a lot of success. I'm going to try and humble you a little bit. Why don't you tell the audience one or two of the biggest mistakes you've made as an investor or an entrepreneur or maybe both? Well, by far the biggest mistake that I made as an investor is I turned down Cisco. So mistakes as a venture capitalist do not come from 
investing in something that doesn't work out because you only lose one times your money. The biggest mistakes are the ones where you turn down something that goes on to be an enormous success. Yeah, I would say Cisco falls into that bucket. Well, it sure does. And uh, I knew one of the two co-founders because she ran the computer center at Stanford Graduate School of Business. And at the time, I was an MBA and I was a TA for the computer class. And she was the most difficult and miserable human being that I'd ever met. And I just couldn't get over how difficult she was, nor could others. But that was the beginning of my learnings about the importance of product market fit over people. That's, uh, I suppose, uh, an expensive lesson to learn. It was a very expensive lesson. Fortunately, we had a bunch of other really good investments, so it all worked out. Yeah, you did all right. I'm not worried about you. So uh, one, one technique that I learned from you, I don't know if you told me this explicitly or if I just picked it up, but is to always ask what surprised you most. And you would do this in product reviews. You would do this in a lot of different contexts. So with that, what has surprised you most about building Wealthfront? I would have to say it's how all-consuming it is. This is something that my friends who are CEOs or who were CEOs of companies that I had backed just absolutely crack up over. I was pretty involved with my companies when I was a venture capitalist, not overly involved in terms of trying to direct what they did, but I really tried to stay current and I would meet with the various members of the management team often. I was very involved in the recruiting. But when I went home at night, I could turn it off. I could go out to dinner with my family. I could go to sporting events or movies. I could go to parties and not think about it. When you're the CEO, you just can't stop thinking about it because you're responsible for so many people. And I had no appreciation for how all-consuming it is. And when I talk to my friends who are CEOs, they love to say, what did you think we were doing? <laughs> so I think that I prefer being an investor to being an entrepreneur because I don't enjoy how all-consuming it is. Well, let's talk a little bit more about some topics that are closer to Wealthfront. One of the things I want to ask you about sort of generally is active versus passive management. There's a lot that you and I agree on. We don't agree on everything. But one thing we do agree on is that you know most people should probably be investing using an automated strategy with low-cost ETFs. And there's been a lot of news lately about day trading and stocks like GameStop. There's a, a number of other fintechs that are enabling day trading or providing active investment products. And a lot of those businesses are doing pretty well. Do you think that this is the beginning of the pendulum, you know, swinging from passive, and we've seen it swing towards passive for quite a while now, back to active management? And what does that mean for Wealthfront? Well, Mark Twain was supposed to have said, and every time someone quotes Mark Twain, it usually wasn't something that he said. I'm sure it wasn't him. (laughs) But he was supposed to have said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme or something to that effect. And the biggest thing that will surprise people is that we've been through this many, many times before, this day trading craze. Every time the stock market increases by a large amount rapidly, day trading explodes. So in the late 1990s, it was a huge thing. Uh, Just before the financial crisis broke, 
it was a huge thing. And now once again, you know, the market is up something like 60% over eight months. So it's uh, once again in vogue. And the sad thing is it always ends poorly, literally always ends poorly. And unfortunately, people have to experience it for themselves not to continue doing it. No amount of me telling someone you shouldn't do this. It's like your parent. You're not going to listen to them. So what we find is that people do it primarily when they're young. They learn a lesson with fortunately not that much money. And then as they get older, they learn about more responsible investing. So this is nothing new and it'll happen in another 10 years. There'll be some crazy event that'll cause the market to go crazy that will make everyone forget what happened 10 years prior. You kind of nicely segued into another topic that I want to talk about there, which is asset bubbles, asset price bubbles. Seems that no matter which market you look at, whether it's early stage, growth stage, public markets, for sure, crypto, even real estate, valuations are up and to the right for a while. Are we in a bubble in general in any of those markets in particular? And what should the median investor do? What do you tell Wealthfront clients to do? Well, once again, history might not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Every single new market goes through the exact same phases. That, and Gartner has a curve that best represents this, where the hype around a market will explode if there's early traction to the point that the hype exceeds the performance. And then after a while, it will plateau and decline because people grow disappointed that the companies in that particular market didn't do quite as well as what they would have hoped. And then the continued good performance of those companies brings the hype back up again. So it's like an S-curve. Now, meanwhile, the companies in the market space continue to grow up and to the right. So it is the norm for new spaces to be way overvalued. You know, I've been investing in technology companies since 1983, and this has always been the case. Again, once again, this is nothing new. As compared to the 1990s, there is no comparison. You know, in the late 1990s, companies were going public with literally no revenue and no business model. They might even have had a negative gross margin. Companies today, when they go public, are very significant businesses. Now, one could argue they might be too highly valued, but they're real businesses. So it's nothing like what it was in the late 1990s. Are you saying that this time it's different, Andy? No, I'm saying that it isn't different. Okay. You know, as you well know, I idolize another Wharton grad named Howard Marks. And Howard is the founder or co-founder of Oak Tree Capital and probably as well known for his quarterly letters to his investors as he is for his fantastic returns in the distressed debt space. And one of his recurring themes in his letters is whenever you hear it's different this time, bet the opposite. That was something you mentioned last time you were on the podcast. So I'm glad to hear you're, you're consistent <laughs> there and your admiration of Howard. You know, one of my great treats being a, a trustee at Penn is I got to know Howard really well and now count him as a friend. So I love talking to him. He's just amazing. 
So, you know, I think we've agreed quite a lot so far on the couple topics we've touched on. Let's chat a little bit about something where I think we're on the same page. Maybe we don't totally agree. And that is mm-hmm. the topic of payment for order flow, PFOF, as it's known by its acronym. So it's funny. Last time you were on the podcast, this was kind of a, a topic du jour, at least for fintech really? nerds. Yeah, I think so. I didn't think it ever got discussed until Robinhood actually was caught or was found out having made their money that way when they actually represented that they made money a different way. Maybe. Maybe I was just traveling in very nerdy fintech circles. (laughs) It was being talked about. And uh, just for context, for people who aren't familiar, and Andy, feel free to elaborate here, correct me. Payment for order flow, PFOF, really refers to the practice whereby your broker will route your orders to a wholesaler. And we can discuss the motivations for the wholesaler for wanting those orders in a second. But the kicker is that the wholesaler will pay a kickback to the broker for sending that order flow. So it's the payment for the order flow. It's pretty simple, but it's actually very complicated when you get under the hood. So the spotlight was on PFOF at a time. I remember talking about it, but it's definitely been in the news lately, as you pointed out in particular with regard to Robinhood. So starting off, what is Wealthfront's position on payment for order flow and why have you taken whatever position it is that you've taken? Well, may I elaborate a little bit more and give a little more context for the listeners as to what payment for order flow is? Please go ahead. Okay, great. Well, the middleman or the wholesaler that you referenced before is an exchange. Stock has to uh, pass through an exchange in order for it to go from one investor to another, from the buyer to the seller. And basically, the exchanges are willing to pay the broker to have the order exchanged through them so that they can take the data about that order and sell it to someone called a high-frequency trader. Now, a high-frequency trader learns that a particular transaction is about to be made, and they might jump in five or 10 milliseconds before the seller buys the stock to buy it and then resell it to the seller. And by doing so, they might make pennies on the transaction but they do billions of these transactions. So in other words, it's the equivalent of a broker selling information about your trade to someone to front run that trade. Now, the SEC does not perceive this as front running. I personally think it's the equivalent of insider trading, but the SEC does not view it that way. People who are in favor of payment for order flow think that it increases the liquidity in a market and therefore makes for a more stable market. I actually think it's a really scummy thing, and I actually wrote a a blog post about that. And a funny story about it is I was asked to speak to the assistant attorney general for the state of New York about robo-advising. And about three quarters of the way through the meeting, He said, I'd like to hear your opinion of payment for order flow. And I gave him my opinion. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, uh, I think you think it's scummy. (laughs) He said, you wrote that in your blog post. And I said, I did. He said, well, I completely agree with you. I think this is a really bad thing. So I just think that people don't realize that their information is being traded upon. Now, I would bet that most people don't care. Just like 
They don't care that you get to use Facebook for free in return for Facebook. They don't sell the data. They use the data about what you react to to place the most effective advertisement in front of you. So that's the cost of using something for free. Nothing in this world is free. It's a commission. It's just the commission that Robinhood earns is 0.2 cents per share. So it's not a very big commission. It's a very tiny commission. Wealthfront is an SEC registered investment advisor in contrast to Robinhood, which is a broker dealer. Broker dealers are allowed to accept payment for order flow. Registered investment advisors are not because we are fiduciaries and we have to do what's in the best interest of our client. And payment for order flow is perceived as not in the best interest of our clients. I remember correctly, that wasn't always the case and you had to kind of fight to not receive payment for order flow. Is that right? Well, we actually had to tell the exchange through which we route our trades uh, not to pay it to us, but to give it to our clients. Wow. So it really is embedded in the market structure. It's the default and it's kind of a surprise if you don't want to take it. Well, there is one exception. Uh, There's a company called Public that I understand has proposed or started uh, using a tipping model, which is analogous to what Earnin does for payday loans. Earnin will advance you money before you get your paycheck. And all they ask is for a tip. This is just like what Wikipedia does. And I think that Earnin has found that people will actually pay more in tips than what you would charge them. So Public is now trying a business model where instead of taking payment for order flow, you pay them what you think it's worth. I think that's a really interesting experiment. But every other broker that offers no commissions is earning payment for order flow. Of that, you can be sure. I'm going to sort of push back and sort of agree with you. So the understanding that I've had about the process that you described there is that the data on the trades that comes from a broker like Robinhood because they're only retail trades, it's not that that data is valuable because it's being used to front run. It's valuable because you know that there isn't a sophisticated hedge fund on the other side of the trade. And so if you're a Citadel in this story, you're the wholesaler or the high frequency trader, you're willing to offer a tighter bid ask spread, which to avoid the technical speak just means you get better pricing if you're a retailer trader. So you can get better pricing than you would get if you went directly to the exchange. And the Citadel or the wholesaler in this case has the advantage, their trading is much less risky. So they're not worried about trading against somebody who's very, very sophisticated. They're trading against the Wall Street bets average guy who's got no inside information, who's not got sophisticated algorithms or mounts of data. And so it's a much less risky position for them. And so they can afford to offer better pricing, regardless of whether or not it's front running or whether it's sort of less risky trading based on that data. The issue still remains that there's a conflict of interest because the broker is getting paid a kickback. And so while I wanted to make that clarification, I do want to say that I largely agree with you there that that's not a good thing to do. And I want to add that it seems to also encourage... Well, but, you know, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Yeah. There are some people who say, I'd rather have free commissions and payment for order flow than to have to pay something. 
So one thing that's really clear, and this is a behavioral economics finding, is that consumers don't like paying fees, and they're more than happy to pay embedded invisible fees, even if those fees are likely higher than what they would have paid if they were transparent and clear. So the issue then is not necessarily the cost structure or the fee structure. It's the fact that it's not made clear. Or is it the fact that, no, it's clear, you can go read it on the website, but it's like a behavioral psychological hack that causes people to think it's free and therefore they trade and trade and trade and trade, which you and I both know, and there's a mountain of academic research out there that demonstrates that the more you trade, the less money you're going to make. The worse you're going to do. Well, broker dealers do not have to disclose that they take payment for order flow. Isn't that amazing? They literally do not have to disclose that. That's crazy. Now, there is a technical filing that they do with FINRA that I guess is a disclosure of it, but they don't have to write it on their websites or in their agreement or anything of that sort. So that's one issue. Another issue is I really do think I am of the opinion, and our general counsel has told me I shouldn't say this because the SEC disagrees, but I think if you sell information about a trade to a high-frequency trader who can jump in and make a margin on that trade, I think that's front-running. I know that technically it is not, but that sure feels like front-running to me. And they happen to do it on consumer trades because there are bigger spreads around the stocks that individuals purchase than there are around stocks that institutions are more likely to purchase. I don't think we're going to solve the issue today, but it's clear that there's a lot wrong with what's going on and that there's serious issues with the market structure. Do you think that 10 years from now that payment for order flow will be a dominant model in this retail brokerage market structure, or do you think we're going to find another solution for this? I think it's likely to continue to have a very significant role. Perhaps we might see more disclosure around it, and it'll be interesting to see if alternative business models work like the public model or a subscription or something like that. But human beings being human beings, I think that they prefer free and they prefer embedded. So I think this is likely to continue for quite some time. I share that cynical, dare I say, perspective. So at the risk of, we may have sort of bored some of our fintech listeners. So let's talk about something that everybody seems to be interested in at the moment, and that's Bitcoin. I remember when I don't remember. I double-checked. When you last came on the podcast, Bitcoin was (laughs) in the middle of its hyperbolic bull run, and it's currently in the middle of another hyperbolic bull run. And I Mm -hmm. think that the price crashed shortly after the episode aired. So I don't know what that means for our crypto holding (laughs) listeners today. (laughs) I'm not... I'm not 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 a good price here, As you point Howard out, Marks likes to say that whenever someone asks him for a prediction about the market, he says, wait a second while I ask my taxi driver. We'll see. But let's, let's chat very briefly because Bitcoin is making headlines. It's going up. Um, it's subject to a lot of the reflexive dynamics that you talked about earlier with respect to day trading and bubbles. If I remember correctly, Wealthfront's old position on Bitcoin, at least back in the day, was that it should be sort of, Wealthfront doesn't support it, but if you want to put a small amount of your portfolio in, to trade, you know, it's money you can afford to lose. That's fine. Most of your portfolio should be in something akin to Wealthfront, but you know, 5% or so of your portfolio 
go ahead if that's what sort of gets you to eat your vegetables, as it were. Is that correct? Is that still Wolfram's position? Yeah, because the, the, and the premise behind that is that in order to qualify as an investment, an asset has to have a cash flow. Because if it doesn't have a cash flow, how do you value it? There's no way to value an asset that doesn't have a cash flow. It's a speculation. So investing in currencies, investing in precious metals, investing in cryptocurrencies, those are speculations. They're not investments, which is why you don't see very many very sophisticated investors include speculations in their portfolio. You don't see gold in their portfolio. You don't see Bitcoin. Does that mean that it can't go up? Absolutely not. Gold goes up and goes down. Silver goes up and goes down. Currencies go up and go down. But I don't know very many people who are really good, consistent speculators. Now, that being said, I've seen a lot of tweets where people say, I disagree with Andy on this. I don't know how you can disagree that it's a speculation because I don't know how you can predict why Bitcoin will go up other than more people will want it than don't want it. So there are many people who are going to want to own Bitcoin. And if you're going to own it, I'm going to give you the same advice that I would give you if you made angel investments, which I think are very unlikely to succeed. That uh, if you're going to do it, keep it to a small percentage of your portfolio. Our chief investment officer, Bert Malkiel, who invented the index fund, was once asked at an event that we hosted for our clients, Bert, do you ever invest in stocks? So this is a man who spent his entire career promoting the importance of investing in indexes rather than individual securities. And he answered, yes. And I also like going to the dog track. For me, it's entertainment. So if you want to do it for entertainment, by all means, just limit the impact it's likely to have on your net worth. We're not going to see Wealthfront supporting uh, crypto wallets anytime soon then. You don't think you're likely to see it. All right. Let's talk about what you will support then. So self-driving money is something you've been talking about quite a lot for quite a while. This is what you sort of pitched me on back in the day when I joined Wealthfront. So let's talk a little bit about the progress that Wealthfront has made towards this vision of self-driving money. And then what does the next five to 10 years look like? Sure. Well, let's take a step back for those of you who don't know what Wealthfront is. So Wealthfront integrates banking and investing to automate your savings so that you don't have to worry about it. You can focus on things that are far more important in your life. And by the way, I think you should focus on improving your career because you're going to make a lot more money by doing better in your career than you are by improving on your investing. So the idea behind self-driving money, which we are now delivering, is that you can direct deposit your paycheck with us. By the way, you're going to get paid two days earlier than, than you would with a traditional bank because they hold on to that money and make money on the float. And then we will automatically pay your bills and route the remaining money to the most appropriate destination based on your situation and goals. So today, you can pay your bills using a debit card from Wealthfront. You can do it via ACH pull or auto pay, as most people know it. You can send checks. We do all that automatically through our website. 
And then we will route the remaining money to high interest cash account or one of our investment accounts and thereby optimize your savings. And by the way, if there's money in your Wealthfront cash account, we can't call it a checking account because we don't have a bank charter, but it provides all of the services of a checking account. We will now move money immediately or within a minute to one of your other accounts. So that saves you a couple of days because if you had to transfer money from your bank account to your investment provider, that would take at least a day and then another day to get it into the market. So we save you two days there. So if you think about it, for every pay period, we can get you four more days in the market. That's more than 100 more days in the market with your money. So it leads to better outcomes, and it also leads to you not having to worry about managing your money. Over time, we'll add more and more destinations. We'll allow you to do multiple destinations in parallel, and we'll speed the movement of that money as we take float completely out of the system. So let's use the the baseball game analogy, which I typically hate because I grew up in England. I never played baseball. (laughs) It's foreign to me. But what inning are we in, in terms of the self-driving money vision? Oh, God, first. It's amazing the number of things that we're going to be able, the number of mundane tasks we're going to be able to automate while still giving you complete control over where the money goes, stop if you want to stop it at any point in time. So we give you complete control, but if you want, you don't have to deal with these mundane issues in your finances anymore, and you'll have much better outcomes. I look forward to this as both a longtime client of Wealthfront and former employee and shareholder. As I said, Daniel, everything I described exists today. Any last words of advice for our listeners, whether it's career advice, investing advice, life advice, what have you got for us? I guess the best advice that I can give is the advice that I give at the end of the class that I teach each year at Stanford Graduate School of Business. And that is focus on learning, focus on constantly trying to get better. Because if you keep learning, you are going to grow faster than the other people that you work with and more opportunities will open up to you. So anything you can do to prioritize learning will serve you exceptionally well. So don't spend your time, and I know this sounds selfish with regard to Wealthfront, but don't spend your time trying to beat the market, trying to invest. It makes no sense. Every, delegate everything that you possibly can other than learning, and you will do far, far better in your career And I actually think you're going to enjoy yourself more. That's a fantastic note to end on. Andy, thanks again for spending time with us on the Wharton FinTech podcast. And I look forward to the next Bitcoin bull run to have you back on again. (laughs) Let's do this again in another four years. All right. Thanks, Andy. 